Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, this is the place every week we gather here for about 48 minutes to peruse through some of the best questions that have been submitted over the course of the week. This is a place where we're going to give dreams uh, legs. We're going to match those up with a brain. We're going to put legs in your ideas. We're going to bring your passions to life. You know, there are a lot of ways to do that. You know, there really are. I mean, I, I do hear a lot of pessimism today, as I'm sure you do as well about the economy's bad, nobody's hiring, there are no opportunities. Well, I'm not sure where those people are looking. I think they're watching too much TV and reading too many newspapers where those people take pride in telling us how bad things are. But get your inspiration from other places. I'm going to be telling you today some of the places you can get that. Putting together a new piece that I've titled Learn and Grow Rich. I've, I've become uh, concerned about you know, people having student loan debt and not being able to find a job and people that have good backgrounds and can't find a job and on and on and on it goes. Well, we need to look in new ways for where the opportunities are. And we're going to be sharing some of those things today. Hey, speaking of which, we're going to be, um, well, you, you hear the podcast here. The podcast, we hope, keeps getting better for all of you audiophiles who recognize the small details of quality. I mean, fortunately, I've got people who tap me on the shoulder and say, Dan, man, what you're doing, you know, isn't up to par. Let me help you. People like Cliff Ravenscraft, who has been working on our podcast and will is pretty well taken over details at this point. Cliff tells me, I just stopped there to listen, you know, because he tells me there's still a little bit of hum from somewhere. I don't know where it's coming from. But Cliff's going to swing by here this weekend and he's going to figure out where that little hum comes from. I think it's probably two flies making love in a corner of my desk here or something. I don't know what it is, but anyway, I'm, I'm delighted that uh, people like Cliff care enough about the quality here that we can keep making it better and better. Got some interesting um, bump music, too, I'll share with you here in a little bit. But let me just bring you up to date on a couple of things that are happening. There's a lot of information out there about you know how to get rich, what the rich people do, um, and a lot of it is legitimate. I mean, you need to be reading you know, what are those people doing? How do those people think? What kind of people do they hang around? You know, what kind of workshops and seminars do they go to? I mean, I'm a glutton for seminars and workshops, as I've told you. Uh, keep going. This this month alone, I have five scheduled, either where I'm speaking or attending. That's more than usual. But, you know, just go into a lot of things, and you can do the same. There's a new book out. I just saw it promote on TV this morning. It's titled How Rich People Think. Author Steve Seibold. I don't know anything about him, but I did go to his site. If you go to howrichpeoplethinkbook.com, you can download the first five chapters. Now, the first five chapters, it's not very lengthy. Apparently, his chapters are pretty short because five chapters only took up 10 pages. So they're pretty short. But he shares things like middle class focuses on saving, world class or rich people focus on earning. And I mean, that's a legitimate point. I like to have my thinking stretched in those ways. You know, are you going to save your way into being wealthy or is it a shorter path if you earn your way into being wealthy? Well, I tend to go with let's make some more money. I mean, even, you know, Dave Ramsey and I talk about this. Now, Dave has a lot of principles about saving, spending less, certainly legitimate all the way through. And and he uh is quick to criticize, you know, people who just think they're going to earn their way out of debt. Uh, But at the same time, I mean, he's very realistic about, you know, figure out ways to make more money. I mean, a lot of times people call in there, if somebody's making 30,000 a year and has two kids and a stay-at-home mom, I mean, that's pretty tough to make that work these days. Figure out a way to double your income. And that's not going to come through just, you know, saving 10 bucks a week. It's going to come through, how can you take your skill set what you know, what you care about, what you have as marketable talents, how can you turn that into ways to make more income? Well, a couple other principles from this guy's book. And again, the book is, what I tell you? How Rich People Think, book.com. A couple other principles here. There's one in here he had about kids that I wanted to share with you. 
and I'm looking at the first five chapters here of what must be a very short book or a lot of chapters. Um, middle class or poor people associate with anyone. Rich people carefully monitor their associates. Now, one of the things I heard him say this morning was pretty interesting. He says, poor people, I'm kind of paraphrasing at this point. We'll just go with this thought for a minute. Poor people look for jobs that no longer exist. Rich people start things that have never been done before. I think I kind of put my own spin on that, but I, I believe that's true. I hear a lot of people who are wringing their hands because they can't find a job in auto manufacturing anymore. Well, guess what? Those days are gone. Forget about it. Find something else that your skills would translate to. But again, wealthy people, and, and don't don't think that, well, if I were wealthy, it'd be easy to have the luxury of looking for new things rather than just looking for a job. This is the chicken and the egg kind of quandary that we've got here. And really, it has to do with how you think. Thinking precedes wealth or poverty. So you can think your way into poverty real quick. Or you can think your way into wealth by believing that things can be done in ways they've never been done before by seeing things that other people don't see and creating opportunities while other people are just hoping somebody gives them a job. I mean, you ever hear that terminology? Gee, nobody will hire me. Nobody will give me a job. You know, I can't find a job. Well, don't find a job. Create something. Let a company know what it is that you do extremely well and You'll be amazed how many companies will say, gee, why don't you come on board? We want you to do that. Companies that didn't even know they needed what you describe. Don't just hope to find a job. Finding a job is a dead-end street. Well, let me go to the questions. Jonathan from Jacksonville says, how important has persistence and determination played in any of your endeavors? Do you find that many people just simply give up too soon? Yeah, this is a tough question. Now, persistence and determination, I mean, I'm as determined as anybody you'll find. I guess that comes across as bullheaded and opinionated and just convinced I can do it, even if people tell me they can't, I, I can't. Or if they say it's impossible, it gives me even more motivation to prove it can be done. So there's that. But that can also play against you because there have been times when I have stuck with something too long when I should have changed direction. Now, maybe you just need to change the terminology here. Do you find that many people simply give up too soon? Yes, I'm sure that's true. But I also find people that are too persistent, that keep beating a dead horse when the horse is dead. It ain't going to run again. Move on. So we need to be careful about how we handle the old cliche, winners never quit, quitters never win. Well, is that really true? Is it true that winners never quit? No, it's not. That adage needs to be done away with. I mean, winners quit, quit often, and know, know when to draw a line in the sand and move on. This, this really relates to the kind of statistics we hear about small business failure. I mean, we hear those old things, gee, 80% of new businesses fail within the first four to five years. Well, what happens is, you know, Pedro out here decides that he's going to have a landscaping business. And so he starts that, does well, hires six guys. They're doing landscaping. And about two years into it, he discovers, you know what? Everybody's a landscaper. It's real easy to make yourself a landscaper. You can go to Home Depot, buy a $200 lawnmower, and you're a landscaper. What if I went a little deeper with my customers who I know have high discretionary income and I'm going to do stamp sidewalks for them or I'm going to do gazebos or screened in porches or water features in front of their house. So I'm going to move into something that not everyone else is doing. I know that I've got a unique skill in that area. So it's not as easy to duplicate what I'm doing as it may be just mowing yards and trimming trees. And so all of a sudden his business no longer exists because he's moved into a business with higher potential that fits him better. But what does that look like in terms of business success or failure? Well, that business that was started two years ago isn't around anymore. Yeah, a lot of died. It's not around anymore because the guy running it, running it figured out a better way to move on. Entrepreneurs don't start one business and stay doing that for 30 years. Entrepreneurs, by the very nature of the meaning of the word, Start things, move on quickly. I mean,
mean, entrepreneurs usually who are very successful start three or four businesses before they find one where they really knock it out of the park. Well, are those previous businesses failures? No. I mean, if you go to Vanderbilt University and you go through an economics class, I mean, you do that for one semester. The next semester, you're not taking that. You're taking something new to add to your learning and potential. It's not that you failed in economics because you didn't stay with it. No, you learned that and move on. I mean, that's the way I see people do it in business. They learn something and they move on. Don't be afraid of doing that. So don't, don't be afraid of quitting something when you know something else has better potential. If that looks to people around you like you quit, hey, so be it. Let them say what they want. Move on. Success is the greatest revenge. Anthony from Wisconsin says, how do you contact publishers for discount books and what are the usual minimum quantities they like to see? You need to have a business name to contact publishers and you need to have your tax resale license. That's not complicated. Neither of those are. You can get a a business name, just file it with your county uh, to get a, that they usually, you know, to get a business license, it's usually going to be like $20, but do that to your county clerk. Typically it may vary in your county or state, but typically it's through your county clerk where you get a business license, 20 bucks, you're up and running, open a business account at your bank. So you've got a checking account with that name on it, get a tax resale license. You'll need that to buy books at discounts through a publisher because you don't want to pay tax on those. That comes through your state revenue department. Now, sometimes that's free in the state of Tennessee. I think it's $5 to get your tax resale license. So it's not a big deal, but you want to have that. Then there's nothing magical about contacting publishers for books. Just call them up and say, I'm Dan Meller, 48 days, my company name, we sell books. I want to sell your title, The Go-Giver. And the typical arrangement is you can buy it right off the bat, 50% of retail. So if a book sells for $19.95, you're going to pay $10 for it. Now be careful with what you think your margins are, because in as much as you're buying it for 50% off of retail, it's tough to sell a book for full retail, because you're going to immediately see that Amazon is going to sell that same book for 40% off. So be realistic about your margins when you're buying books from publishers. Typically, you can get a little bigger discount if you buy them non-returnable. A lot of books I buy at 60% off, non-returnable. Book business is a funny, antiquated business, and a lot of people buy books with the option to return them. I mean, bookstores buy them in that way. Again, a horrible business model for everybody involved, but they still do it. So if you are going to buy books and non-returnable, then you can get a little deeper discounts. Now, you can also find books, not from the publishers, but just through liquidators. And you can get these very easily, and I buy a lot of books through places like bookcloseouts.com or buy.com where I buy may buy 100 copies of a book that's out of print but it's still a great title nothing wrong with it nothing wrong with a book being out of print incidentally that just means usually that it wasn't marketed well and if you have a way to market it or the content ties in with content that you're talking about golly go ahead and get a book that's out of print that's cool I do I do that a lot where I buy books that are no longer available but if I get a chance to buy 500 or a thousand of them and we can buy them for a dollar and 20 cents a piece and it was a 14.95 book I mean we have a lot of fun with those make a lot of money on those make a lot more than the author ever dreamed of making again the real key is how are you going to market it what are you going to do with it Scott from Phoenix says how did you learn to speed read is there a particular method that you recommend I never learned how to speed read. Now, I read, I'm really not a speed reader. I mean, you hear about these people that go through some kind of a course and they just kind of fan through the pages and they know everything that's in there. I can't do that. I mean, I just, I enjoy reading, but I really want to know what's in there. And I read about a page a minute in a typical book. So if it's a 240 page book, it's going to take me 240 minutes. What is that? Four hours to read through a typical book. And that's about what I do, but that's not really speed reading. Uh, Some of you may be a little slower than that. Certainly some of you are probably faster than that, but I've never taken a course in speed reading at all. I mean, you can take an Evelyn Woods course and one of those. If you really feel like you need to increase your speed, that's fine. I think you can probably do that just by um, not, not focusing on every single word. I mean, my wife Joanne reads novels and she reads every single word. I mean, I don't do that in any book. 
I mean, I, when I turn a page, I mean, I'm going to catch things. I don't go through every single word. I mean, the first sentence in a paragraph is usually important. If somebody has illustrations or a call out, I may skip over that. And again, I mean, I want to know what the content is, and I'm not just skimming it, but I don't read every single word. I mean, I, I, I read much faster than a person could speak, as an example. That's why I still prefer books rather than audio. I can read a lot faster than anybody is going to talk because of the way that I read. I'm not sure that was helpful. I, I am not an expert on speed reading. Brian from Georgia says, Dan, you talk about how much you help pastors and ministers write resumes for companies. Can you expand on this process and what you have them do? I feel like my resume is too churchy. and It's not getting the looks it needs to impact nonprofit organizations in the marketplace. Well, what you want to do, Brian, is look for areas of competence marketable skills that you have that are transferable, that are not just pigeonholing you in the church arena. Now, let's just brainstorm a little bit here. I mean, what are the things that you likely have done as a minister that would have application in another business? Well, pretty much everything, if you frame it right. I mean, let's just list some things. Interviewing, hiring, training, presenting, motivating, persuading, Customer service, budgeting, forecasting. Oh, you may have computer skills, Excel, Word, Publisher, some of those things. Vendor relationships, purchasing, inventory control, facility management, project management, team leadership. You could have phrases in your resume like committed to high work ethics and to attainment of management goals and objectives. Competent in planning, organizing, creating strategic plans with clear goals. Uh, If you're a minister, you could put in excellent writing and verbal skills described by others as loyal, trustworthy, fun-loving. I mean, those are all things. I mean, things that I mentioned there, and I just off the top of my head, but those are things that would have application for virtually any other company out here. So if you choose two or three of those and you really develop those, you're going to position yourself as a candidate to go on board with the nonprofit or with another organization in the marketplace where those things do not pigeonhole you just in a church environment. I worked with a pastor one time a couple years ago, and they had gone through three building phases in the church while he was there, and then through some unfortunate choices, he lost a job. Well, in looking at what he was a candidate to do, we were easily able to pull out the things he did just in the building arena, but overseeing projects, you know, overseeing the workforce you know, getting competitive bids, you know, working with vendors. I mean, those things very quickly positioned him for a really great opportunity, which he moved into because he had great personal skills and framing those things that he had done in his position as a pastor, other than the bad choices he made, uh, very quickly gave him new opportunities. And you can certainly do the same. Here's another one to kind of, this is another pastor one. Rusty says, I'm an ENTJ on a Myers-Briggs. Means he's very outgoing, thinking, people-oriented. Challenger on the DISC profile. I provide paramedical care. I'm an entrepreneur, a worship pastor who is a jack of all trades, but master of none. The The past eight years of my work has been accidental. But how do I intentionally pursue what I love if I don't know what that is? Well, you, you, that I mean, you just identified the challenge there for sure. It's very difficult to do something well if you don't really know what it is you want to do well. I mean, you can't just be a good worker. You have to know what is your passion? What is it that you're drawn to? But when you identify the things that you already talk about, you're an entrepreneur, a paramedic, a worship pastor. I mean, certainly you've had things that you are doing where you ought to see clear patterns emerge about those areas that you are most passionate. So when you identify those, then you say, okay, how can I expand my work, my focus in those areas where it really blends what I know about myself and what I want to do well. If you really, if you're evaluating your life by only looking in the rearview mirror, and that's certainly what you're going to be doing if you say your work has been accidental. I mean, if you just respond to what pops up, you're going to have a very mediocre existence. Now, I I commend you on doing things, a variety of things, and certainly in the early parts of our career, sometimes the main benefit of the work we do is simply to help us clarify what we don't want to do. So take advantage of that. 
even if you're not clear yet on what you do want to do, take advantage of the work experience you have and are having now to help you identify what you don't want to do. And in doing that, you move closer and closer toward the goal of the perfect blend of work that you want to do. This question comes from uh, Lam- Lambertus, all right, from Ontario, Canada. I'm a 62-year-old male artist, Christian museum exhibit designer artist. I'm passionate about art and art history, looking to make a career using my art. Would like to combine painting and travel in both Canada and the U.S. and Europe. Any advice on how to afford this? Enjoy your podcast. Well, just look at how are you going to market it. In any business, we very quickly go to not just what is your skill, what is the product or service that you can offer with excellence, but what's your marketing plan? Just like when I work with writers, who somebody who wants to write a book, I say, that's great. You know, write a book, do a good job. Now you're 10% finished because 90% is promotion, pricing, getting it out there in the marketplace. You have to do that. So you have to have a clear plan on what is it that you're going to be providing that will actually create revenue. So if you're doing painting historical scenes or you're painting state capitals or capitals of countries, if you want to travel internationally, or if you want to do kids in different countries, just identify what is a focus. You can't just be a generalist. You can't just be an artist. There's too many out there. You have to be an artist who is known for something. I mean, look at Ann Geddes. I mean, she does the most beautiful things with kids. Real, real phenomenal photographs and art with kids. I mean, Ron Baldwin, whose artwork I have here in my office, was a pastor and transitioned into being an artist, incidentally. But his art all has a music focus. It's real bold, vibrant colors. He puts on Beethoven and Mozart when he paints. And it's real abstract. He creates works very quickly, but it has a musical theme, all of his art. So he's known as that guy here in a in an area where we have thousands of artists in Nashville. He's known as the guy, the go-to guy for art with a music theme. So people like Martha Ingram and Alan Jackson and others have Ron Baldwin pieces in their homes. He's very represented in high-class restaurants around town because this is a music town. And so they have music theme art and Ron Baldwin is the biggest provider of that. So you need to decide what is your focus? What is it that you're going to do with excellence? What is it that gives you what we call a USP, your unique selling position? Once you do that, absolutely. You can do your art, travel around, have a great time doing it. Nathan from Columbia City, Indiana says, I love your podcast. It gets me motivated. Problem is when I get motivated about a new business idea, I suddenly come up with a bunch of other business ideas, which inevitably distract me from doing any business. How can I pick a good idea and get out of this cycle of distraction? Thanks, Nate. Well, Nate, you're, you're in a good position. I mean, it's wonderful to have a lot of ideas. I mean, the biggest struggle is when you have no ideas You know, somebody says, I haven't had a creative idea in 20 years. But if you have a lot of ideas, that's a great starting point. But here's what I want you to do. Take 30 days, list 20 great business ideas. Now, this can all be done in the 30 days. So you may take a week and come up with 20 business ideas. I mean, expand your list. Don't narrow down. Expand it. Then weigh those ideas against what you know about yourself. See, what you know about yourself is a filter for measuring any good ideas. If somebody says, golly, Dan, you ought to get a Subway franchise. That's the hottest franchise out there. Absolutely not a good idea for Dan Miller. I know way too much about myself to recognize that's not a great fit for me at all. Not a chance in the world that would fit me. I mean, to, you know, work with empty level employees who, you know, show up when they want to or get a chance to go to the beach and don't show up at all and to be serving 700 new customers every day or have to smile and pat them on the back. I mean, it just doesn't fit me. Now, I mean, that's just me. I mean, there are people who do that extremely well, but it doesn't fit me. You need to do the same thing with your 20 ideas. Looking at your skills and abilities, your personality tendencies, your values, dreams, and passions, just as I lay out in 48 Days to the Work You Love, What are the three to four ideas that fit you best? Then do a little bit more research and go even deeper on what would really be a good fit for you. Then pick one. Then create a plan of action. Don't second guess yourself for a year. 
Don't let yourself get distracted. I mean, I right now have things clearly laid out for 2011. Now, how many ideas you think I'm going to be confronted with between January 1st and January 15th? Tons of them. I mean, people bring me lots of ideas because of my reading and going to workshops and seminars. I'm exposed to a lot of new ideas. But I already know what I'm going to do in 2011. Those new ideas aren't going to deter me. Now, if, I mean, if, you know, Richard Branson says, hey, man, I want to do this little joint venture with you, Dan, I, I'm going to consider it, believe me. But chances are that I'm not going to be deterred. I've already decided what I'm going to do, what I'm going to commit my time to, even though there are a lot of other great things that are going to show up, things that interest me, things I know that would make sense for my business, things that would be profitable and that I would enjoy. But you just can't keep getting distracted. You'll never get anything done. I mean, that's that shiny object syndrome where anything gets your attention and distracts you from what you were doing. And if you do that, you'll never really accomplish much. You have to have a focused plan and narrow down, do something really, really well. Mark says, uh, in a recent broadcast, you related all the negative things you encounter in your morning newspaper and then commented that it was nothing good to start your day. And I agree. I also know the great lengths you go to to make sure your mornings are uplifting and you, your days start out positive. Have you ever had a person that kept up on the daily affairs of the world but came across as depressive claim you were only blissful because you refused to see the world as it was? I have this problem with my immediate family. Thanks, Mark. Yep, Mark, I have it happen all the time. I mean, there are people I encounter every day who are very up on all the things that are happening in the world, in every corner of the world. And they're despondent, they're discouraged, they're pessimistic. So this is a pretty easy, easy exercise for me. I simply ask myself, would I, be re- would I rather be living their life or mine? End of story. I mean, you, you can take that position. And if you want to be knowledgeable about everything that's happening in the world, you're going to hear a whole lot of negative things. Now, I'm not saying, you know, live your life with your head in the sand. Hopefully I don't do that. But there are a whole lot of things that I could spend my time obsessing about that really don't relate much to my everyday existence. I need to be responsible for the things that I can control. You know, one of the things that I often help people with, even when they're working in a in a job, let's just say they're working at a job and they're in what we call a toxic environment, I help them identify what is it that you can control? What is it that you can't control? Now, if you're working at Microsoft and you're upset about their latest production of software and uh, you think Bill Gates is doing things with his money that he shouldn't be, those are probably things you can't control. Why waste your mental energy in that area? Look at the thing you can control and then make your decisions based on that. So if if ignorance is bliss, so be it. I want to be ignorant. I don't want to have my time absorbed with the things that are happening in the world over which I have very little control. I want to have maximum control over those things that I can do that will make a difference in my own little world. And that has the potential to affect my family, their future. You know, there's a, man, I've got a a thing in the back of No More Mondays. It ends with, it's written on a tombstone in the Abbey, the Westminster Abbey in London. And it talks about, uh, um, shoot, I wish I would have thought to bring it up here. I'll bring it up another time. Or you can look at the back of No More Mondays. But it talks about a guy who says, you know, he started off thinking he was going to change the world. And then he realized he couldn't do that. And blah, blah, blah. It goes through and he realizes when he's on his deathbed, if he had not tried to change the world, not tried to change his country, not tried to change his church, his government, you know, the company worked in his family, but only looked at himself, then changing himself would have had an impact on his family, his company, his church, his business, his country, and ultimately the world. But he was looking at it upside down. A lot of people do that. I mean, I hear people that, you know, work at McDonald's for eight bucks an hour, you know, talking about what's going on in Afghanistan and that we're taking the wrong approach there. And I'm thinking, why don't you do something in your own personal life that really matters instead of obsessing about something where you're never going to make a difference. Well, I mean, I, I start my day early. I started my day very early today. I got up really early and uh, came back to the sanctuary. I responded to emails from uh, 
foreign countries. I polished a piece that I'm writing, I'm working on, that I want to release in a couple weeks. Uh, then I went back to the house after being up for, you know, I guess, about three hours or so. I went back to the house to have my muffin and cup of tea with Joanne. She was up by then. Let me know she was up. We talked for about half an hour. Then I jumped on a treadmill for a full hour. I uh, read the newest issue of Success Magazine while I was on a treadmill. Then I showered and came back to my office by about 8.30, ready to start the day. Uh, that's, you know, I, I cover all kinds of cool things. Well, let me give you an example here of something cool. In Early in the morning, now I, if you track the time back, I was over here by about 4.15. But it, it, early in the morning, I often communicate with people in other countries because the time zones are a lot different. So I communicated with people in Norway and Sweden and Finland this morning uh, very, very early. Also got this clip. Let me play this clip. Now, you know, we, we have a lot of people talking about, you know, bump music for 48 days and all that. And I'm always intrigued by the cute things that people create. Uh, I'll let you listen to this and you'll know right away this guy probably doesn't live in Alabama. Welcome to the 48 Days to the Work You Love Internet Radio Show with Dan Miller, who, for the next 48 minutes or so, will share his experiences and provide you with advice on how you can add value to your working life and so bring positive changes and a positive impact to other areas of your life as well. So whether you're working for the man or whether you're working for yourself, sit back for the next 48 minutes and let Dan do the work and show you how you can say goodbye to those Monday morning blues here on 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller. So what do you think? Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. Now, obviously, that comes from our friend and listener, Alex Fenson from the UK. But uh, I love just running through things like that. And I get those early in the morning from people all around the world. Well, let me go on here. Billy says, Dan, um, I live in Bruton, Alabama. Well, here is an Alabama guy. I own a small lawn maintenance company, two to four employees. My question centers around small business and the fact that most published material, books, audiobooks, magazines, do not seem to address many of the issues of small business entrepreneurs. If the book is on business, it mainly addresses the struggles facing the Inc. 500 businesses. If it's on entrepreneurship, then it will address the issues in Silicon Valley. And if it's on business startup, then it's selling a kit for making millions, stuffing envelopes, or an MLM business opportunity. There seems to be a dearth of material for the aspiring landscaper, restaurateur, welder, fabricator, or the mechanic. Being that I have four to six hours daily to listen to podcasts, audiobooks, and the like, I wonder what you might suggest. I have everything. Now listen to this. I have everything by Gerber, Godin, Collins, Stanley, Kiyosaki, Gladwell, and of course, Dan Miller. My audio Audible library alone contains more than a hundred books. Thanks again. A cute, a cute sentence here at the, at the end. He says, sorry, the mail email was so long. I didn't have the time to write you a shorter one. You know, there's a lot of truth in that. Writing a short blog or a short message is a lot of work. It's easy just to have stream of consciousness and make something long. A lot of writers don't understand that principle. It takes a lot of work to take a lot of material, condense it down to something that really is meaningful. Cute note. Now, the people he mentioned, he says he has everything about Gerber. Now, that would be Michael Gerber, who is best known for the e-myth or the entrepreneurial myth. Godin, Seth Godin, you hear me talk about him a lot. He has books like Lynchpin, Permission Marketing, Purple Cow, Idea Virus, Lots of good stuff for small business people. Collins, Jim Collins wrote uh, Built to Last and Good to Great business books. Those ought to be in anybody's library. Now, those, those really do apply to big companies. Most of Jim's principles, a lot of solid principles, but he's talking about leadership of really big companies. Stanley, Thomas Stanley wrote the book, The Millionaire Next Door, The Millionaire Mind, and a bunch of others about that. He studies people who are millionaires. Those are principles anybody can understand. If you've got one employer, you're working by yourself, you need to read Thomas Stanley's books. Robert Kiyosaki, of course, known for Rich Dad, Poor Dad, financial management principles, investing, running a business, the tax advantages of being self-employed rather than being an employee, and so on. Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote The Tipping Point, a Blink, 
helping. He just kind of observes how new things get started in our culture. But good stuff, man. You've, you've got a great library, Billy, and what you're talking about already. And the fact that you are taking time every day and using time that would otherwise, you know, so many people like you, I mean, they'd have on just country music or rock and roll or hip hop or something absolutely meaningless, just chewing gum for the brain that they'd be listening to. You're taking that time, recognizing it as valuable time, as every bit as valuable as sitting in a classroom in a university and you're using it to pour positive information into your brain. I commend you on that. You know, I mean, you're doing a lot of right things. I mean, when I look at the list that you've got, I mean, you've got a lot of the people that I would recommend for somebody. And you're going to get the things there that are going to apply to small business, even if they're talking about, I mean, success principles are very transferable. So if somebody's talking about what works in a big business in terms of relationships or integrity or character, or taking care of customers or having good relationships with the people who supply to you, I mean, those are principles that are applicable whether you have one employee or 10,000. So I would encourage you to do that. What could we add to that? Now, certainly I hope that you're getting some of the great magazines and using, going to their podcast and blogs and websites as well. Things like Success, Fast Company, Inc., Entrepreneur. Um, in terms of, yeah, we have people like um, Gary Vanacek and Chris Brogan. They talk more about how to use social media. And in a landscaping business, that probably is not really that applicable for you. One thing I would advise you to do, you know, a couple things I would advise you to do as I think through this. For one thing, I did a quick check and I did not find you in 48days.net. And uh, I'm not sure why. I mean, if you've got a small landscaping business, you need to be involved in 48days.net. There's no cost to sign up, but this is a place where people exactly like the business you're describing are sharing ideas about how to grow, how to grow personally, how to grow their businesses, how to be more profitable. I mean, that's where they're doing it. You got to jump on there and do that. Another book I'd recommend is The Art of Nonconformity. Now, you're going to be hearing more about this because um, some things are happening. This is a brand new book just came out a couple weeks ago, The Art of Nonconformity. Now, it's really kind of being the rage, written by a young guy, Chris Gelboo. Chris, is goal, his personal goal is to visit all 192 countries before he's 35. He's only got about 21 countries left. So he's, he's well on track to make that happen. Chris is doing a tour right now of his book. Now, this is something you do by yourself as an author. Publishers don't fund cross-country tours. But I looked at Chris's, I read the book. My son, Kevin, introduced me to the book just recently when we were at a seminar in Portland, Oregon. I went to Powell's, the mammoth, mammoth bookstore out there, world known, and got a copy of The Art of Nonconformity. Read it on the plane coming back home. But I went online and I looked at the tour that Chris already had mapped out. And in Tennessee, he was going to stop in Memphis. I shot him an email. And I said, man, forget Memphis. You need to come to Nashville. Well, he sent a note back and said, you know, geez, he's very familiar with my work. He'd love to do something with me. We put, a, put it together very quickly. And he, in fact, is going to be here. Now, I'm not sure when you'll be listening to this, but he will be here the 20th of October. It's going to be one of his stops. We're going to just have a meetup here, no cost, but people to show up, and he's going to talk about the art of nonconformity. It's going to be here at our sanctuary in Franklin, Tennessee. Look at our site. I'm sh Ashley's getting some things ready to go up there to let people know about that. Again, we don't want, you know, 1,000 people. Uh, we don't want more than about 50, but we're going to just spread the word a couple different ways to people who are likely to be good candidates for understanding the principles that he talks about. But The Art of Nonconformity is certainly a book that I would recommend. All right, Bill says, I want to start my own home inspection business. I'm excited. No, it's something I would enjoy, but I have strong fears about it, such as not securing enough appointments each week. What are your thoughts on a business like this? I don't want my fears to hold me back and prevent me from having a successful business. Well, here's the deal. Those fears are going to be present for you with any business idea. I mean, if you decided to open a subway, what if not enough customers showed up? What if you're an accountant and you couldn't get enough clients? I mean, that's just a legitimate fear about doing any, anything outside of having a job and clocking in every morning. So if you're ever going to have something 
non-traditional entrepreneurial creative with open-ended income and time flexibility, you're going to encounter that fear. What if you don't have enough appointments? What if you can't sell enough? What if you don't have enough customers or clients? So you just simply have to identify now before you even start that, what is your marketing plan going to be? I mean, who would you need for referrals? I mean, in a home inspection business, you're going to want to have relationships with real estate agents, mortgage bankers, contractors, make a list of 30 to 40 referral sources. You can talk to them before you start your business. Now, I've always done that. When I started an auto accessories business years and years ago, I wanted to focus on the new car dealers. I didn't open the business and then say, gee, do you want me? I went to every dealership in town. And said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Would you be a prospective customer of mine? And they said, oh my gosh, absolutely we would. Get going. So when I had the affirmation from all those people that would be my customers, then I started that business. I mean, when I talked to them, I was still considering other business ideas. When I got such confirmation from them, then I did start that business. And I did pinstripes on cars and side moldings and door edge guards. And then we moved into doing sunroofs and roll bars and running boards, cruise controls, stereo systems. But, I mean, I simply went back to the people and said, hey, guess what? I really am in business now. Let's go. And they did. I mean, it was an amazing, amazingly quick startup because I talked to all my potential customers in advance and got their firm commitment that they wanted me to provide the services I was talking about. I mean, in the home inspection business, I mean, when we bought the house that we currently live in here in Franklin, Tennessee, I did a one page brochure on exactly what it was we were looking for. I mean, we wanted something, you know, far enough off the road. We weren't going to be hearing trucks and cars and planes and trains. Um, I wanted something that would be like a writer's paradise. I wanted something that would be more like an old farm style structure, although not something that needed a lot of remodeling. I wanted a little barn. I wanted enough land, you know, it could have our grandkids run around and so on and so forth. I, I had a like the description of what I wanted. I had that hand delivered to 1000 real estate agents in the County that we were targeting the County in which we live in now, Williamson County, Tennessee, 1000. There's a service. I mean, I think I paid, you know, hundred bucks or something. There's a young guy that has permission to put things in the mailboxes, not just, I mean, we're not talking about mail delivery. We're talking about in their real estate offices where every real estate agent has a little box slot for brochures, updates, and so on. It was put in there. It was hand delivered to a thousand real estate agents. You can do things like that, but establish your relationships first so that you know you're going to be covered up when you in fact start your home inspection business. Okay, Bill from Naples, Florida says, Dan, I spent the last 10 to 12 weeks working on a restaurant business plan. My advisor at SCORE, and that's S-C-R-E, that stands for Service Corps of Retired Executives. It's a branch of the Small Business Administration. My advisor at SCORE and my accountant have given it their blessing. I need an angel investor with $100,000. I have $55,000 of my own. I'm 52 years old. I've operated I've owned a similar successful operation. Any ideas where I can find angel investors that are not friends and family? Well, yeah, you can find angel investors, you know, in dark alleys, uh, waiting to take over your business. Uh, This is not an approach that I would encourage you to do to have an angel investor where they're putting in a hundred, you're putting in 55. I mean, they're going to, they're going to control your business. You don't get somebody to put up that kind of money, that percentage of the investment and then just stand on the sidelines and hope you make it okay. Personally, I've never started an idea where I wanted to give up that much control. So I would rather start it small if that's uh, working off a picnic table in a park to build up my own revenue and start it so I own it. Now, that being said, there are other ways to get get funds for operating a business, but I would do it in a way that keeps you in a driver's seat. I mean, really, angel investors are not likely to be interested in a restaurant. I mean, angel investors look for high high returns. They look for speculative businesses, the development of a software program or something like, or the next Facebook, you know, something like that, that has a real high upside. Yes, there's risk, but it has a real high upside if it's successful where they can then, you know, get a 
3,000% return on their money and cash out in two years. That's not going to be the case in a restaurant. A restaurant is going to be a long, long, slow, modest ROI. Um, I, I don't think you should waste your time looking for angel investors. You know, Just go to a bank and borrow it if you want to do it that way. I mean, you'd be a candidate for an SBA loan. If you've got 55000 of your own, you've done it in the past yourself, get a small business loan rather than an angel investor. Lisa from North Carolina says, Dan, my husband and I went through foreclosure four years ago and survived with a stronger marriage. I want to write a book about our experience and give others suggestions on how they can do the same. But people are only searching for products that offer Band-Aid fixes to foreclosure and not relationship advice. How can I market this? Well, Lisa, really, uh, there are books. There's a lot of books on finances that do include the relationship things. I mean, Dave Ramsey, his material offers a whole lot on relationships, the things that he and Sharon went through and how to have relationships together, working on the same page and so on. But if your material is similar to his, just look at how he markets his materials. I mean, that's what you have to do. I mean, Dave has a radio show, podcasts, live events, lots of merchandise, seminars. I mean, those are all ways that he markets his books and you're going to have to do the same it's hard to have just a book and i mean this is a tough thing to kind of look at it's hard to have just a book and think that you're going to make a living from a book i mean i've had a lot of success in writing i love writing but i would never in a million years try to survive make a living just by advances and royalties on my books i mean my books are business cards for the real meat of the business that i run where we have live events and we do all kinds of other things to get people involved. Um, just be realistic about what a book is going to do for you. A book ought to be a support for a larger scope of business that you have. So identify what that's going to look like, build it around that. Let me go. It looks like we got, I got time for maybe one more here. This comes from Ria. Hi, Dan. I am from Gutang in South Africa. A woman, 45 years of age, never married. My daughter will be 18 in December. I am now jobless, five months, soon homeless, unsupported family, no job, no income, no food, can't pay rent, no clothes, etc. I'm at the end of my rope and very discouraged. Real man, I, I, I mean, I feel for you with where you are. That's a tough spot to be in. Where do you start when you have nothing? Again, don't look for an external solution. Don't look for a handout. Don't look for a bailout. Don't look for a, a program that's going to look inward. 85% of the process is looking inward. Look at yourself. What are your skills? What is it you do well? How do you relate to other people? What are the things that you really enjoy doing? What are your dreams and passions? Then start looking what kind of work would blend those all together. Now, there are a lot of things being done in your part of the world. And again, depending on where you live in South Africa, it's not that unlike New York City. But if you're in a poor section, identify what is it that people would need there that you can do. I mean, I have a son who works with ladies in Africa who have been disadvantaged, but he helps them connect with micro enterprises that they can do where they will survive and thrive, not looking for a job. I mean, you may be in an area like Jared works in where there's high unemployment. And with that, it's tough to get a job. You may just have to create something. What is it you could do that would benefit others? I enjoy going through Kiva.com. K-I-V-A dot, well, it's dot org. K-I-V-A dot org. But it's a, a microenterprise lending program. I mean, just this last week, I loaned $50 to a guy in Ecuador who is an auto mechanic and he wanted to expand the tools that he has. Now, it's a very orchestrated program and it is a loaning program and 98% of the money is repaid. It comes back in and I can loan it to somebody else again. But I like ideas like that where somebody has identified, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I need a little bit of money just to help me, but then I'm going to repay it It'll and make my business successful. I also made a loan this last week to a lady I don't know. I think it was in Peru. Again, it doesn't really matter, but she made a good presentation. She already has two washing machines in a little town where there are no washing machines. So guess what? She can rent that out 
to the other ladies in the village and essentially has her own little laundromat. Now, these are really rudimentary, simple little washing machines, but she wanted to, to get a couple more. So I made a loan to that particular program where she would be able to go buy more washing machines. I mean, people in these areas, even the, the tough parts of the world are finding ideas. What is it that you could do that would have value? And you have got to do the same. You can't just hope to get a job. Again, look for some kind of a program that's going to give you a temporary bailout or make you dependent on hoping somebody else feels sorry for you. Don't start there. So even if you're in a tough situation, again, I, I mean, I don't have time to go into the times where I've been there. I've been in really tough situations, but I never looked for a, a government program, a bailout, unemployment, anything of the kind, you know, I simply looked, okay, what is it that I can do? And if that's mowing yards or painting houses or hanging ceiling fans or doing a delivery service, you know, or promoting a product for somebody, I mean, it was always something or just going down and, you know, buying a hundred dollar car, cleaning it up and selling it for 200. I mean, I've done a lot of that, but we've got to be more creative instead of just looking at the pessimistic outcome of the world at large. Well, that's a tough one to end with, but I'm going to stop there because of our time. That's our 48 minutes. We're out of time. Again, your host here, Dan Miller. Appreciate you being part of our 48 Days community. Get involved in 48days.net if you aren't already. Most of the things we talk about here have a p- application there, and people just like you are there sharing ideas, getting advice, and ramping up their ideas. Join us for some of the live events coming up. People are already registering for the 2011 events that will be here, Coaching with Excellence, Right to the Bank, and other things we got coming up here. Again, appreciate you being part of our ongoing 48 Days family here. A lot of things happening. We're heading into the end of the year. We're already into the last quarter of the year. I hope this has been a great year for you and that you're already planning for the year that you want to have next year. You're not dependent on what happens in the economy, whether or not we're in a recession. You're dependent on what you're doing to make plans for the life you want in the coming year. Keep doing that as you keep identifying work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. Have a wonderful week.